coming up on Economics Explored. You constantly need to be introducing novelty. You constantly need to be introducing new ways of doing mm. things, new ways of producing, new ways of finding the best cost structure, new ways of serving your customers, new ways of treating your employees, new ways of organizing your production structures um, in order to outcompete each other. And that is the health of markets. That's what evolutionary economics is. Big difference from neoclassical economics is it emphasizes the importance of differentiation and variety to the health of markets. Welcome to the Economics Explored podcast. I'm your host, Gene Tunney. I'm a professional economist based in Brisbane, Australia, and I'm a former Australian Treasury official. This is episode 88 on evolutionary economics and the Schumpeterian perspective on economic growth. My guest this episode is Dr. Brendan Markey Towler, who is making his third appearance on the program. Previously, I've spoken with Brendan about behavioral economics, that was back in episode eight, and about the economics of the fourth industrial revolution in episode 61. In this episode, Brendan and I speak about the key insights of the subfield of economics called evolutionary economics. Evolutionary economics sees the economy as a constantly evolving system, a process that Joseph Schumpeter labeled creative destruction regularly replaces failed business models with newly successful ones that take advantage of innovation. The entrepreneur plays an important role in this theory, as Brendan and I discuss. I'll be very interested in your thoughts on the points raised in my conversation with Brendan, so please send through any questions, comments or suggestions to contact at economicsexplored.com and I'll aim to address them in a future episode. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Brendan. Dr. Brendan Markey-Towler, welcome back onto the program. Gene, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk about what we are, I think, going to talk about today. I could talk about it to an empty, I could talk about it to an empty room, but thankfully you're here. Okay, well that's great, Brendan. I'm glad to hear you're enthusiastic because I thought it would be a good time for us to speak about a topic that I know you know a lot about, which is evolutionary economics. And also I'd like to talk about Schumpeterian approaches to economic growth and to the extent they're related to evolutionary economics. So could we begin, please, with you giving us a, a summary of what is evolutionary economics? Is, it, is, it, is there a, a simple definition of it, please? So, Gene, I'll tell you a story. Um, I, I, we can go into the history of where evolutionary come, economics comes from a bit later because that will take a lot of time, but I'll, I'll tell you a more picturesque story to begin with. So when I was going through university, which was um, 2009 to 2011, uh, I was learning straight down the line standard neoclassical, we call it neoclassical economic theory, uh, demand, supply, diagrams, equilibrium, price clearing, um, equilibrium as uh, the price that clears markets for in, uh, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, comparative statics, you move demand here, you move supply there, that's how you understand an economy um, as a vast machine settling down to an equilibrium. And I always felt, you know, especially in the realm of price setting, that doesn't quite makes sense to me about my observations of how the economy works. And I was really struggling with this uh, throughout my whole degree. And I remember this vividly. In third year, I um, 
I got into this course by mistake, a third year course on evolutionary economics. It was run by Professor John Foster, who was the head of school at UQ uh, between 1999 and 2009. Um, 1999 and 2008, I think, but that's not too important. And I was reading in on this stuff and I was kind of like, oh, yeah, right. I had a few, you know, I read the papers before I went to, uh, to class and still remember vividly walking across the great court out at UQ thinking, ah, oh, if I don't find this course too interesting, I'll, I'll switch to something else after the next week. So this great court, this is a beautiful court. The cloister's there, greenery. It's model, this is UQ, University of Queensland right. in Brisbane where yep. we're picturesque as, as anything yes. based on is, do they have a great court at stanford or or is it based on the great court they run around in uh, chariots of fire i oh, know there was a chariot the the race the running race around there I'm we going, do do one at yeah. uq yeah that's um, tangential so, sorry keep going but it's uh yeah you can imagine uh you can imagine medieval monks walking amongst yes. the trees um, as the mists swirl so i was walking in that space going oh, i'm not sure if i'll keep at this course and I get into this to this class in the old Frank White building, which is now gone. It's a seventies decor, fantastic, love it. And um, this this tall, lanky Scottish professor walks in, Professor John Foster, and he gets down and he starts saying, "Okay, so you've learned all about how an economy is an equilibrium system, settling down, and and prices are clearing markets." But I'm here to tell you that's not how an economy actually works. It's much more like an evolutionary system of competition and survival of the fittest. And that's how the economy really works. And I went, oh my God, that's exactly how it is. And, and all of a sudden, my, it was like the scales fell from my eyes. And I went, this is how an economy actually works. Is, you know, in the perfect competition model that we use in neoclassical economics, this is a static model. It's all about finding the price at which demand and supply will be equilibriated. Evolutionary economics took that and recast it as firms are competing in markets in their setting of prices, in their setting of attributes, in their uh, delivery of service to customers to try and outcompete each other to survive. So that's what evolutionary economics is all about, is changing that starting point of economics from let's look at how markets clear by finding equilibrium prices to let's look at markets as much more akin to biological systems where different species, different organisms are struggling to survive with each other. Um, and so where we typically have a population of animals, we now have a population of firms where they have uh, different talon lengths or different uh, differential strengths, we're now looking at price differences and attribute differences. And so we don't look at markets now in evolutionary economics as um, equilibrating systems where firms are pricing to reflect their cost structures per se, and then the market is figuring out who gets what. We're looking now at uh, markets and firms as uh, systems where there is differential survival, differential selection, we call it, between different firms with different traits, with uh, different approaches to producing, to pricing, to serving customers, and that the markets select from those in a way, in in a similar sort of way to natural selection uh, selects among species. Right. So with the neoclassical model, with the neoclassical approach, is that assuming that 
a lot of these firms end up doing the same thing or they look alike like you have they're all using similar production techniques they're all charging the same price or they're forced to to charge the same price by the market that's the the model isn't it the yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Model. and and one of the biggest differences between the way that evolutionary economics approaches markets and neoclassical economics approaches markets is that evolutionary economics says that if a market is in equilibrium it's dead if a market is in equilibrium it's dead what you should have in a functioning market is riotous variety with firms trying out all sorts of different things and discovering new ways to produce, new ways to price, new ways to service customers. And over time, that will uh, homogenize. Uh, over time, selection dynamics will tend to resolve variety into homogeneity because the the, the the best firms, the firms that best satisfy customers will be selected. Whereas in standard neoclassical economics, it kind of starts at that end point in a way. Um, it starts with a, a population of many, many, many different infinitesimal firms that, that are roughly similar. They've got roughly similar cost structures. They're all charging about the same price and they've got all the same cost of production. Evolutionary economics looks at the market very differently. It says, let's start with understanding how markets work by resolving this incredible variety of people trying out all sorts of different things. And over time, markets select the best iterations of those products and resolve that variety into homogeneity. Uh, so there's a very famous theorem, in fact. One, what's really interesting about evolutionary economics is it talks about, and it shows mathematically, actually, this is a very famous mathematical theorem in evolutionary mathematics called the Fisher theorem, which says that the rate of improvement in a population is directly proportional to the variety among that population. What's that saying? It's saying you constantly need to be introducing novelty. You constantly need to be introducing new ways of doing mm. things, new ways of producing, new ways of finding the best cost structure, new ways of serving your customers, new ways of treating your employees, new ways of organizing your production structures um, in order to outcompete each other. And that is the health of markets. That's what evolutionary economics is. Big difference from neoclassical economics is it emphasizes the importance of differentiation and variety to the health of markets. And so this is what we've seen with all of the startups in the last 30 years or so associated with the internet. I mean, that, that could be the example of, of that, uh, that dynamism occurring. Oh, just the latest one. You know, this has been throughout history. That's, the, that's what really in many ways got evolutionary economics started was this is how you understand economic growth is it's not just technology comes from nowhere. Mm. Um, you know, in the Swan Solo growth model, we say Swan Solo because we're Australians and we, we like to emphasise that Trevor Swan came up with this model. In this model of economic growth, technology kind of drops as manna from heaven. Yeah. And um, the economists said, let there be technology in our models and there was technology and the economists saw that it was good. Evolutionary economics says, well, where growth comes from is from firms trying to compete and so that uh, all of growth all of economic growth comes from some entrepreneur somewhere coming up with a new idea coming up with a steam engine say coming up with a uh, internal combustion 
engine, coming up with a petroleum engine, coming up with a computer chip, coming up with a new way of boring holes in the ground, and then saying, I think I can make some money off this and uh, compete with the other ways that this is done. And that's where economic growth comes from. So the internet and all the startups associated with it are the latest iteration of a very long process that has been driving growth for, well, forever, but particularly in the last 250 years since the Industrial Revolution. It's an evolutionary process of there is variation because entrepreneurs bring new ways of doing things to the market. The market then selects from those which are the most successful iterations, and those become integrated into our economies and cause them to grow. Absolutely. So one movie I've seen recently, it may be a couple of years old now, but it's The the Current War with uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, I think it is, and it tells the story of Thomas Edison right. and George Westinghouse and how they were competing. They had – one of them had – AC, yes, that was Westinghouse, and he had, I think, Tesla was helping him out, yes, and then, but Edison had his DC, DC system, current, yeah. and uh, and he was promoting that, and it tells the AC DC, you might be tempted yeah, to say, yeah, <laughs> yes, as Australians, well, <laughs> yeah, AC DC is uh, very much always on our minds. Yes. Uh, uh, so uh, it tells that story, just that competition. I mean, Edison was obviously one of those great entrepreneurs who's helped who helped drive economic growth and now, I mean, more recent examples, Steve Jobs. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, Elon Musk. Yeah, so what, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, Gene, because what I've been talking about is relatively abstract and it might kind of fall on, on, on the deaf ears for people who aren't complete nerds about evolutionary economics and can talk about it to an empty room. But that example you just mentioned of, uh, of, of Edison and Tesla via Westinghouse is it classic case study of how evolutionary dynamics work in economies is we need a new power source. In fact, uh, John Foster was very um, uh, instrumental in developing the idea that the need for new energy supplies is the fundamental imperative of uh, evolving complex evolving economic systems. But anyway, you start with there is a need for energy. Now, Edison came up with the direct current uh, method for generating electricity. And that was fine. Edison did fantastically when, when that uh, technology was applied throughout the world, revolutionized the world. But Tesla came along with the alternating current, which was a more efficient way of supplying that electricity, right? Did the same job, but it was better. And you don't really get the dynamic whereby Westinghouse and Tesla's application of that technology, that innovation, we call it in evolutionary economics, came to dominate the market, you can't quite, you can't, you can't quite bang that into a neoclassical economic framework. It doesn't really make sense in the context of markets finding the price that clears them and, and sets demand equal to supply. You have to understand that much more as there's a population of rival firms trying to supply a demand and they're all trying to supply that demand as, if, as effectively as they can. And they're all competing with each other to be selected by that demand, right? So it's the law of natural selection, but applied to markets, right? And so when Tesla and Edison are slugging it out in the markets, it's not dissimilar to different populations of animals slugging it out to survive on the savannah, right? Um, and eventually, because Tesla has the superior, more efficient technology, 
He gets differentially selected by the market. He generates more revenue, more profit, and he's, his technology becomes more integrated into the overall economic structure. That is an evolutionary process. Yes, absolutely. So can I ask you about Fisher? Which Fisher are we talking about? Oh, this is so this isn't the Fisher that we're familiar with in not economics. Not Irving Fisher, but no, is it's it not a statistician? Fisher. Uh, Ronald Fisher. Right, yeah. Um, he wrote a very, very famous book called On the Genetical Theory of Natural Selection. It's it's uh, should probably better say that it's infamous. <laughs> right. Uh, because it's notoriously difficult to read and it's got typos everywhere. But he was one of the first guys who discovered the uh, mathematics of evolutionary systems. And he was the first guy to derive and show mathematically this concept that um, evolution is driven by variation and it's driven by variety and that a system that has no variety in it is dead, right? So he was one of the first guys to mathematize the evolutionary process whereby there is variation of some trait selection pressures exerted on that trait by the environment and then resolution to homogeneity of that trait. Or not typically homogeneity, I shouldn't say homogeneity, but a few particular attractor points that best suit the environment. So Fisher was the first guy to mathematize that concept of how evolution works. So let's think about this intuitively. So how how let's think about this. How, why is this relevant to economics? Because it would tell us that we want a dynamic, open economy. We don't want to have firms that are protected or we don't want guilds that are blocking people from entering professions. Uh, we don't want subsidies to existing firms and they're blocking you know, new entrants. Uh, I mean, how's it, is, am I right in thinking along those lines that this can be an argument in favour of a free market, a free and open economy? Absolutely, and that, that's more my take. There are there is a whole. I'm I'm somewhat in the minority in evolutionary economics. <laughs> Most of my academic colleagues um, tend very much towards the the more left end of the spectrum, and so get into concepts like national innovation systems, where the government takes a lot of responsibility for generating variety. But I, I tend not to towards that end. That's the Mariana Mazzucato end of of evolutionary economics. Um, who wrote that book, The Entrepreneurial State. So I'm not of that persuasion yeah, so much. Yeah, I'm we- much more of the persuasion that um, what you find from evolutionary economics is that it is absolutely essential for entrepreneurs to be free, to come up with new ideas, to test them out by trying to sell them in markets. And the best way to do that is not for government to try and pick winners the best way and try to fund those winners. The best way to do that is to make sure that you've got as free a market as is humanly possible to make it easy for firms, for new firms to emerge and for new technologies to enter the market, right? So as low a barrier to entry as you can get, this is a different approach, again, differentiation between evolutionary economics and neoclassical economics. Neoclassical economics would say we want um, very low barriers to entry because it leads to a more efficient allocation of resources in, um, in markets because firms can freely enter and exit. Evolutionary economics would say, yeah, but the really interesting idea is you want low barriers to entry because it, allows, it makes it much easier for someone with a new idea about how to produce, I don't know, an iPhone or a new vaccine to bring that to market and try uh, and see whether it's desirable to people in markets. 
Okay, okay. I want to come back to um, Mazzucato a bit later because I think some of the points she makes are good points. Uh, so we'll, we'll chat about her a bit later. You talk about the role of the entrepreneur. Now, I remember when I first started studying economics, probably late 80s, early 90s, I started reading uh, economics, uh, different books, and there was this idea back then that, well, the two major factors of production are labour and capital. For a while there were some people saying, well, we should consider entrepreneurship as another <laughs> yes. factor of production. And this is in the 80s yeah. and we'd had, you know, there was a cult of the entrepreneur in the 80s in Australia. We had Alan Bond and I would say Laurie it's more Co- the cult of the uh, corporate raider. Yeah, well, on, that's yes. right. <laughs> yeah. They turned out not to be really arguably not entrepreneurs yeah. as as we need entrepreneurs to mm. be in in the capitalist system, they, they they tended just to be uh, yeah speculators. And yes, yes. So that 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 was an unfortunate episode, and we had that colossal boom in the eighties, and then the massive crash. So it gave entrepreneurs a bad name for mm. a while. But I think one of the great things in the last uh, well, at least twenty or twenty five years is just the restoration of the the role of the entrepreneur, the recognition of the importance mm. of the entrepreneur in driving economic growth and. Is this an idea that that uh, Joseph Schumpeter popularised? Yeah. Now, so that that brings us back to some of the history of where this uh, approach to economics um, came from. So, if we go back to 1911, yes, <laughs> um, I know. Uh, yep, 110 years ago, uh, there's a young man studying at the University of Vienna um, named Joseph Schumpeter. And the least interesting thing about Joseph Schumpeter is that he became the best economist never to win a Nobel Prize um, for inventing evolutionary economics. Schumpeter was a bit of a playboy. Um, he was famous. He was the he was a finance minister in the first post-war uh, Republican Austrian government. This is post World War One. Yes, and he he was famous for showing up to cabinet meetings in a horse-drawn carriage with two ladies of the night on either arm and a, and a um, bottle of champagne in one hand. So he's a bit of a playboy, and he was famous for saying um, that he had three goals in life: to be the finest horseman in Austria, the finest lover in Vienna, and the greatest economist in the world. And he said, "I've met two of these three objectives, <laughs> but the horses just aren't cooperating." Uh, I, I didn't know the bit about the horses. I, I heard I've heard a variation of that. The extraordinary yeah. thing is that that's. I think that's all true, and yes. uh, uh, so yeah, I'll put some links in the show notes to a couple of books. I yes. think those stories, those yes, stories about are him. Told um, but so so that's why the one of the least interesting things about <laughs> Joseph Schumpeter is that he invented evolutionary economics, right? So, um, but what Schumpeter does, this is actually before the war, but as a um, as a the Second World War now, First World War, before the First yeah, World before War, before the First okay. World War. So in 1911, he writes this really interesting book called The Theory of Economic Development. He writes it in German. It got translated later. Uh, but the Theory of Economic Development. What he did in that book was he he looked at uh, the Valrasian model of markets, which is the one that really underlies most of neoclassical general equilibrium theory. And that model is all about it views the economy much like uh a a hydraulic machine of of flows around various sectors of uh, of this machine 
with flow regulators that we call prices and those prices bring the flows into equilibrium with each other and create an equilibrium flow around the machine and it, it settles down to a steady state and sits there in a beautiful equilibrium where, where all of the different flows are balanced with each other. That's kind of the Valrasian model of how the economy works. And most students of economics will learn that in their first two years. So this is named after Leon Valrab? Yeah, Leon right? Valrab, a, a Swiss economist. Um, interesting guy. Um, but uh, for our purposes today, we won't talk about uh, Leon. Oh, we can talk about Leon at some point. But the most important thing is that he comes up with this idea of the economy as a machine that's settling down to an equilibrium. Now, Joseph Schumpeter reviews that in the first chapter of his book and says, this is amazing. This is so interesting how Leon Valra did this and showed how if you disrupt the flow um, to one part of this machine, it causes uh, cascading changes across the machine and causes the machine to figure itself out at a new equilibrium. And so for people who are familiar with computable general equilibrium models, that's what Leon Valra was describing. And Schumpeter loved that. He said that was a really interesting model, really useful for understanding the interlinkages of the economy. But what it leaves out is the most interesting part of economic systems, which is how they are not in equilibrium. Like look at how the economy responds year on year to new technologies, new government policies. The last thing you can say about it is that it's in equilibrium. It's a useful enough concept to use, but Schumpeter says, no, 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 that's not the most interesting thing. The most interesting thing about the economy is the disruption. What's causing that disruption? What's causing that economy to be thrown out of the steady state that was described by Valra and into this riotous complexity that's, uh, that's evolving at explosive, chaotic rates that we see in reality? And he said, that is the role of of the entrepreneur. That's what the entrepreneur does, is the role of the entrepreneur is to throw the economy out of equilibrium by introducing novelty. And that novelty is what drives the, the, the economy and is constantly throwing it out of equilibrium to generate new ways of doing things. So what is an entrepreneur then? It's somebody who introduces new things. And Schumpeter was very specific when he defined what an entrepreneur is. Back in 1911, and we still use this, this idea today out in the business school, you don't find it so much in economic schools, you find it in business schools. What is an entrepreneur? An entrepreneur is somebody who innovates. Okay, fine. What do we mean by an innovation? An innovation is, Schumpeter describes it very evocatively um, as a new combination it's a new way of producing. It's a new, so it's not another factor of production. It's a new way of combining the factors of production, right? So you think about the iPhone. What was so spectacular about the iPhone? Well, the, the spectacular thing about the iPhone was that it wasn't a phone, right? It was a computer. So what Steve Jobs had done, why he was an entrepreneur, was he took the capabilities of a phone and the casing of a phone and connected it with all of the capabilities of a computer and brought them together. So you've got a kind of weird, like the last thing you use your iPhone for is a phone, but we still call it an iPhone, right? So he came up with a new combination and that was what we call in evolutionary economics an innovation. And what is an entrepreneur? It is somebody who innovates. It's somebody who brings together new combinations of the factors of production, new inputs to produce new outputs, 
And they are the thing that throws the economy out of equilibrium and generates the variety that feeds the evolutionary process and causes the economy to advance by introducing these new ways of doing things to the market that are then selected from, we select the ones that work and that advance our lifestyle and the rest die away. It's why 95% of startups fail, but it is the entrepreneur who introduces that new way of doing things, right? So it's not a factor of production. And, and, and if you're of a neoclassical economic persuasion, if you're using a swan solo model, you can kind of think of it that way as it's like another factor of production, right? It's the A in the, in the, in the famous production function where you've got K for capital, L for labor, and A for technology. The entrepreneur increases A. That's not what the entrepreneur is in the Schumpeterian way of looking at things. The, the, if you want to think of it this way, it's the function, it's the way that capital and labour are combined. It's the way that we recombine widgets in order to produce new things that throw the economy out of equilibrium, that throw it into chaotic dynamics and cause it to advance. That is what the entrepreneur does. Okay, okay. Now, you mentioned before, I'd like to ask you about this national innovation system concept because you mentioned that some evolutionary economists, uh, they talk about these national innovation systems. And I'd like to ask about that because when I was in the Treasury about oh, over 10 years ago now, but in Canberra, so for the Australian government, one of the things I was involved in was there was this review of the national innovation system. Yes. Professor John Foster worked on that with Senator uh, Kim Carr. Yes, I yeah. yes. He was on one of the committees, I remember. Yes. And uh, and yeah, and I always wondered, well, where's this idea of the national innovation system come from? Because in the Treasury, we were fairly laissez-faire. And, uh, I mean, we, you can see the economy as a system, but how can you really think about a national innovation system? What's going on there? What What's meant by a national innovation system? Yeah, uh, national or government and innovation don't typically go together, right? Um, but, uh, you know, that, that, that's, that's a glib remark. So let's look into what, what the idea actually is. So um, what is a national innovation system? Well, Schumpeter, who we were just talking about, drew attention to this quality of economies that they develop by disequilibrium and that disequilibrium is 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 created by entrepreneurs throwing the economy out of this structure this balance by introducing something new so um schumpeter talked about this individual as a heroic individual because they know that they're going that, that there's well they're either heroic or stupid and quite possibly a little bit of both right because 95% of these ideas fail. 95% of startups fail um, because it's an experiment. Um, so it's, it's, it's a very heroic thing to, to, to be an entrepreneur. And it's an even more heroic thing to finance them. <laughs> right? So it's a very heroic thing to be a venture capitalist. Uh, you know, typically, if you're a venture capitalist, you're doing really well if um, – something like 40% of the people you loan money to don't default. Right? That's yeah. pretty amazing. Well, you're looking for those 10x returns That's or exactly 100x. Right. Yeah. So what during the when the when evolutionary economics when Schumpeter was being rediscovered by evolutionary economists in the 80s. 
what they looked what they looked and saw was well it seems to us now I don't agree with this necessarily but uh, they said it looks to us like there's what we call a market failure there because the efficient level of entrepreneurship could theoretically be a lot higher what and because um, financiers are pretty reticent to um, to to finance um, entrepreneurs now anyone who's been to Silicon Valley and seen um, the venture capitalists who exist there would, would kind of say oh, I'm not so sure but you know let's entertain the argument for now so the argument was that there was a there was a social benefit to entrepreneurship that um, that was not internalized to the entrepreneurs or the venture capitalists who financed them. So there was an inefficient um, level of entrepreneurship. Now, what do we do when we see an inefficient uh, allocation of resources, Gene, as economists we call for? Oh, I'm not necessarily going to call for that, but you could argue there's a case for a subsidy. Is that you what you're call, saying? Yeah, exactly, right? Yeah. There's a case for a subsidy. And so national innovation systems really got their start when, when economy, evolutionary economists, academic evolutionary economists in the 80s thought, well, there must be, a, if, you know, if there's an inefficiently low level of entrepreneurship, we should subsidize it. So they said, all right, well, let's start thinking about constructing these national innovation systems, which will go out there and rectify the market failure of there being too little innovation. So... Um, in the best style, the, the solution is to throw money at the problem. So uh, that's why you get things like Advanced Queensland here in, a, in Queensland. That would qualify as a, as a national innovation system, technically a state innovation system. But it tries to provide a bit more finance than the government thinks that the market would. Or it, it, provo- it tries to bridge the gap between what the, mar- what the government thinks the market should be providing in terms of finance for entrepreneurs and what it actually provides. So that's the main idea behind national innovation system is how do we get, uh, how do we rectify this market failure where there's not enough finance flowing to entrepreneurs to get their ventures off the ground? Um, Innovation systems go broader than that. They talk about, okay, how can we connect uh, entrepreneurs with mentors to try and um, help those, you know, entrepreneurs are often technical guys, so that they really struggle with the business aspect. So, how do we connect them with mentors to make sure that they uh, they they run a really good commercialization strategy around the tech that they've brought to market, and so on and so forth? But that's what the idea of national innovation systems are. They are vast. I can see John Foster somewhere slapping me over the wrist because he thought that national innovation systems are a bit different to this. But generally speaking, the general mainstream thinking about national innovation systems is that they are vast interlocking um, government programs and sometimes government private sector partnerships that aim to rectify the market failures that lead to an inefficiently low level of entrepreneurship by providing finance, by providing mentorship, by providing um, advice about bringing innovations to market. Is it about the creation of the the knowledge in the first place through pure research at universities and research institutions. So that that was not really necessarily where the thinking started from, but okay. it quickly went there. Okay, right. So uh, there's a distinction in 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 evolutionary economics between invention and innovation. 
Um, so in, invention is when the idea is come up with. Innovation is when it's actually applied. So the entrepreneur doesn't do invention. The entrepreneur does innovation. Strictly speaking, if you want to get academic about it. In reality, it's, the distinction is a lot less fuzzy. But originally when national innovation systems were developed, it was more of an idea of, well, there's lots of, you know, we're trying to support the entrepreneur who's bringing that invention into the market. Um, But very quickly uh, it was realized that, um, well, this sort of happened before the national innovation systems concept was there. This this idea originated with Vannevar Bush who was talking about this a uh, that the knowledge that feeds innovation is a public good. It can't really be commercialized. Academic research is a public good that's non-rival yes. and non-excludable. Let, let's just explain who Vannevar Bush was first. So he was he he was the guy who who provided a lot of the thinking for. I think it was the Eisenhower administration who were coming out of the Second World War and looking to really beef up the American military tech yeah. sector to compete with the Russians in the Cold War. And Vannevar Bush wrote this really famous article which predates a lot of the national innovation systems thinking, which said there is a, what we call a linear um, yeah. uh, model of, of innovation, which is academics do research, they come up with a new technology, then innovators uh, in Silicon Valley take that invention and innovate, and then that drives uh, outcomes for the military and the broader economy. Right, so national innovation systems uh, were focusing largely on the entrepreneur part there, where the innovation is taken into market. But um, earlier, they, they they integrated into their thinking that earlier Vannevar Bush had said, "Look, the invention that entrepreneurs take and apply, that is a public good that um, we need that is undersupplied by markets." Now again. Anyone who is familiar with sort of the, the Enlightenment would go. I'm not so sure that that's quite the case, but let's give that. Let let's go with it. The idea was that the inventions, uh, the invention phase, the coming up with new ideas that could be commercialized by entrepreneurs, that was undersupplied in a free market society because there was not sufficient incentives for academics to pursue that research. And so, um, even before the national innovation systems were set up and these eventually became integrated into the national innovation system. You had government going out and giving large research research grants to academics to come up with um, uh, new missile guidance systems, uh, which uh, I believe um, I believe uh, eventually became part of the GPS positioning yes, system. Yes, yes. Um, uh, to come up with new ways of communicating between computers. Uh, this is one of Jason Potts's favourite things. He said, so DARPA went out, which was one of the agencies that was the f- most famous agency that was giving um, this money is defense to advanced. Defense Advanced Research Projects uh, um, Agency, went out and gave a bunch of money to um, some computer scientists at the Stanford Research Institute in particular, who were tasked with finding a way to get launch computers to talk to each other automatically in the event of a nuclear strike on the United States. When they invented that technology, that was what it was for, and then we found out that it was useful for the humans to send email to each other. <laughs> right, so that was the idea that behind, behind, behind that. So national innovation systems were originally, when they were thought up in the 80s, about how do we support the entrepreneur who's bringing these ideas to market. But very quickly they realised, oh, well... Uh, a vital part of that 
um, in national innovation system thinking anyway, is this older program that was already there of subsidising um, fundamental research into physics, into electronics, into um, mechanics, into computer science uh, to develop new knowledge that could be commercialised by entrepreneurs. And so that became integrated into the national system, innovation systems thinking. Sure. So I think this is, Maza, is it Mazzucato? I think this is her point, isn't it? So a lot of the innovation that has occurred in the last 30 years has relied upon research undertaken during the Cold War and publicly supported. So you talk about Vannevar Bush. I think he was at the National Science Foundation in the States that he set up. I don't know. I'll put some links yeah, in there. Yeah, the National Science Foundation, the Defence Advanced Research yeah. Projects Agency and the Advanced Research Projects Agency, the yeah. most famous ones. And look, I mean, a lot of the, the fundamental advances were supported by governments uh, as part of the Cold War. So the development as part of uh, either development of nuclear missiles or the space race. So many innovations have come out of the space race. And and so I guess what I'm trying to say is you may need a bit of both. I mean, you essentially, you need some public support for the pure research. I'm less supportive of public support for finance. I, I don't think, or in commercialisation, I think that's the role, that's where the private sector should take over. Mm. Um but it, there clearly is a role for the public sector in in some sense, and I, I think what Mazzucato is trying to argue is that we're, we've turned these entrepreneurs, people like Steve Jobs and Elon Musk and and uh, I guess Zuckerberg to a lesser extent, we've turned them into these idols or the, these gods. When yeah, really a, sure. a, lo- a lot of this, a lot of what they're doing is they're just taking technology that has been supported by taxpayers. Yeah, so. So um, the, Mariana Mazzucato, uh, um, very famous in evolution, she's mo- probably the most, no, not probably, she is the most famous evolutionary, famous evolutionary economist in the world right now, even though you wouldn't necessarily call her that. Um, she is the most famous Where evolutionary. Where is she? Is she at LSE? So she is at, the, uh, the, um, at University College London, and I know oh. that because, full disclosure, um, I went for a job at University College okay. London in Mariana Mazzucato's unit and um evidently because i'm sitting here i didn't get it so (laughs) next time next time uh surprise surprise but um uh what mariana was was really what what was really interesting about the work that mariana did and i I, you know i do disagree with it but that doesn't mean i can't recognize that she pointed out something really interesting which is um if you take something like the iphone that's the classic one that we always come back to is the archetypal innovation uh, that most of us familiar with now Almost all the technologies that go into the iPhone were originally pioneered by military government grants, right? Almost all of them were funded by DARPA, right? Down to the radio frequency transmitters that that allowed the phone to connect to the radio uh, towers. So, to the cell phone towers. Um, uh, so, radio frequency transmitter connect to the cell phone tower. So, almost all of them. Uh, the internet came from a DARPA grant, Um it might have been an ARPA grant, but either way, it was, it was funded by uh, the US government and so on and so forth. You can just go down the line and you find that all these technologies were at some point funded by the by the government. Now, Mariana's quite right on that, um, yeah. that, that, that historically the government has been involved in a lot of the technologies, in the development of a lot of the technology, a lot of the invention, right, of the technologies 
that um, that we now use uh, for, for for everyday life. But c- correct me if I'm wrong. Was Steve Jobs part of the U.S. government? No, no, no. Like, no I'm right? saying you so, need both. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, keep no, no, going. No. Keep going. I, I'm just doing the thought experiment. Yeah. Here, right. So correct me if I'm wrong. Was Steve Jobs part of the U.S. No, government? No, no. Right. And that's the critical thing. Right. Is the entrepreneur brings the technologies together. Sure, they might have been funded by the government, but I really can't think of the US government having built the iPhone. Oh, exactly. Right? And, it, and it couldn't have taken advantage of GPS in all of the civilian applications to the extent that we're using it to get around the world. Uh, the, the, it, it's helping us, you know, it's helping us get over to the cafe on the weekend if we Uber over there. That's right. So that's, <laughs> that's, that's criticism number one, right, is, yeah. is um, yes, it is true historically that the government has funded a lot of invention, mm. but that it hasn't uh, necessarily. Now, the entrepreneurs um, in Silicon Valley, yeah, sure, a lot of them were commercially viable um, because of US government contracts, specifically military complex, uh, contracts, right? So a lot, of the, a lot of Silicon Valley grew up on the back of military con- contracts yeah. that provided them with a f- basic commercial sustainability. Um, which is a really important part, much more, frankly, I think, this is a bit of a personal preference, but much more important than national innovation systems is government contracting for providing commercial sustainability for early early um, venture uh, uh, startups. Yeah. But the entrepreneurs themselves were not US government employees. They might have been made commercially sustainable by US government contracts, but they were in the private sector. Now, the second criticism is... It might be true that the US government funded that research, but that is kind of that ignores the counterfactual. You know, who's to say that that research wouldn't have been undertaken even if the US government hadn't hadn't stepped in, right? So um, a lot of uh, so so one of the other really famous two two of the other really famous uh, examples of inventors, great inventor innovators are Thomas Edison at Menlo Park and Bell Labs okay, uh, with IBM. Oh, no, so not IBM. General <laughs> Bell Electric? Labs with, um, with, with um, the, the Bell Telephone Company. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. IBM also had a very famous research and development department as well. well Xerox had Park, didn't it? And Xerox had Park, exactly, yeah. which um, Steve Jobs um, uh, visited once mm. and, and saw a certain device that definitely didn't become the mouse, <laughs> the computer mouse. But- so companies in the old days, um, even before and even during the, the period of um, DARPA, ARPA, the National Science Foundation, um, lots of private companies were undertaking pure research as well. In fact, a, a lot of the observations that led people to discover quantum mechanics were made by um, a, a lot of the uh, early observations that that were empirical data for quantum mechanic experiments were discovered by guys at Bell Labs, right? So that's my other problem is it's like, well, yes, that's true historically, but what about the counterfactual? Yeah. Okay? So, um, so that, that, that's not to say that we should entirely dismantle Advanced Queensland um, or the Department of Innovation. Uh, that's not to say... Um, that DARPA and ARPA, and they've got a new one, ARPA-H for healthcare, not to say that they should be dismantled, but it's to say let's be, let's be a little careful before we, we talk about um, 
thinking that the government is responsible for innovation and entrepreneurship that drives our economies forward. Let's be careful before we start saying that the entrepreneurial state, that was the title of Mariana Mazzucato's book, let's be careful before we say that that's the way that we should drive economic development. Because as soon as you're in a government context, the incentive structures are different, the um, decision-making processes are different, uh, and, and the uh, imperatives are different. You're not under the same commercial imperatives as, a, as, a, um, as an entrepreneur is, or even an inventor is. And so that, that changes the calculus. Um, it, it means that you're not subject to the same market pressures as an entrepreneur yeah. or an inventor is. And that's important, right? Because the whole po- we've been talking a lot about variation up to now, which is you know generating the diversity and the variation that drives economic systems to develop. But equally important is the selection element, right? Equally important is the market saying we like this and not this, and thereby freeing up resources to fund new variation, right? And this is why. For instance, I'm not really that concerned about um, Chinese economic development, right, as a, as a national security threat to Australia or the United States or whatever around the world. I'm not that concerned because um, the Chinese government is largely in control of their economy still and, and a lot of innovation, even in China, you know, there's Alibaba, there's Weibo, there's all these, there's all these apps um, and, and China has good research, good entrepreneurship. But the, the calculus is different because a lot of it is still under the control of, of the state and the imperatives, the decision-making processes and the incentives that, that state employees face are very different to entrepreneurs and they can prop up ventures longer than the market would sustain them and thereby not free up resources for new entrepreneurs. Um, they, can, they can lead to, they can crowd out what would otherwise be the better alternative in the market simply because the government is propping up a particular mm. technology. Uh, so like, it's fine. I, I like to have that debate and I want that debate to be had. But before we go saying that the government is responsible for entrepreneurship, we should be conscious that the imperatives and the incentives and the decision-making processes that a government employee faces are very different to those that an entrepreneur would face. And they can distort the selection processes that are equally important in markets oh, yeah. for driving economic progress. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the way I would put it is that you may need some government involvement or some government support of basic research or or to to develop the basic systems that through the government procurement. The government can buy certain things. It can set up the GPS system. But if you want that to be useful for consumers – then you need entrepreneurs to figure out how to use it to, to combine it with other technology. And so one of the great things was when, I think it was the Clinton administration that decided to make GPS available to the public, like after the US had effectively won the Cold War and they thought, oh, well, there's no there's less of an imperative keeping this a secret or keeping it just to ourselves. Mm. So we'll open it up to the public. And that's where all of the amazing innovations of have come from that, uh, and and so you use you get GPS and you combine that with your uh, your Wi-Fi or your your three G or whatever it is, and then you can you, you've got an your iPhone, you've got an Uber, you can do Uber, and you can get 
you know, right? And that's what they, they can find you and they know where to go. Yeah, absolutely. And that comes from um, that comes from the incentive structure that an entrepreneur faces, which is if I can find a better way to satisfy a demand in the market, I can make money off that. I can provide a good for somebody. Somebody can pay me. Everyone's happy, right? That's an imperative that an entrepreneur faces to try and satisfy a demand. And that's not the same imperative that, that, that a government faces. And it's that imperative that, that, that the entrepreneur faces, which underlies all civilizational progress, right? All of civilization and all markets are, are ways that we discover better ways to help each other out, right? So um, we've been talking a bit about competition, but really we've been talking a lot about competition, but what really markets are good for and what entrepreneurship and innovation is about is cooperation. Right, so markets are systems for coordinating cooperation, and innovation and entrepreneurship is a way of finding out how we can better cooperate. It's about you can help me by paying me an income, and I can help you by providing you with a better email service, with a better washing machine, with a better food product, um, you know, uh, with with a better taxi service, um, with with a better food delivery experience, you know, it's all about finding new ways to help each other out and generate mutual benefit, right? So that's what an innovation and entrepreneurship is about, is it's finding better and new ways to cooperate with each other. Absolutely. Okay. Now, we'll try and wrap it up in the next 10 minutes. This has been a great conversation, Brendan, as <laughs> I expected. You could go, you'd be fantastic on one of those Joe Rogan sort of three-hour epic Podcast. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> I have to investigate doing a live stream with you one day to try and do something like that. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm <laughs> very happy to go on <laughs> if Joe can find out who oh, I am. <laughs> be terrific. Okay. Uh, what was I going to ask? Uh, yeah, a couple of things we want to clear up first. So these national innovation systems, does this idea come from Nelson and Winter? There was that famous book in the was it the early eighties? Evolutionary 80s? theory of economic change, yeah. Evolutionary theory of economic change. So it change. didn't necessarily come from that book. It came from later work by Nelson Winter um, um, uh, the, and their PhD students uh, Franco Malerba and Giovanni Dosi, and um, they're they're. Fantastic guys, I know them. They're they're terrific fun. Um, Giovanni is is basic. Imagine a cherub, and that is what Giovanni is. <laughs> yeah, he's a really interesting and fun guy to know. But those guys were the guys who came up with it. So, um, that book and that research program that Dosi Malerba and their advisors Nelson and Winter came up with um, was all about rediscovering Schumpeter. It was it was. In the 80s, there was, a, there was a real sense of crisis in economic theory, that economic theory has run its course and that it's not really helping us to explain at the macro level the, the stagflation that we're seeing. Um, it's not really helping us explain how economic growth happens. It's not really providing us with a, with, with a, with a really good explanation of why markets are superior to communism. There was a real sense. There was a famous paper written at the time by Frank Hahn, who was a great um, uh, uh, neoclassical economist, who defined the general equilibrium model as we now teach it to our students. And he titled the article "Our the Winter of Our Discontent." This was 1973, and so there was this great proliferation of different ways of looking at the economy. This is when 
uh, a lot of the post-Keynesian school um, who um, Steve Keen is a representative of uh, got their start because they were looking at uh, radical uncertainty and how it impacts markets. But then there were these two guys over at Yale University, Nelson and Winter, who went back and rediscovered this obscure little book, Theory of Economic Development by Joseph Schumpeter from 1911. And they read that and they went, this is really interesting. What, what Joseph Schumpeter, he never used the words natural selection. He never used the word Darwin. He never used the concept of evolution explicitly. But they said, oh, what Joseph Schumpeter has discovered is an evolutionary approach to economics. And so in 19, so from, they were, they were writing this book famously for 10 years and they were always just about to publish it. But uh, they finally got around in 1982 to publishing this book, An Evolutionary Theory of Economic Change, which took the insights of Schumpeter about how economies develop by being thrown out of equilibrium and um, into uh, disequilibrium. And they tried to formalize it, update it, and cast it in the language of evolutionary theory. Um, and it's from that that the whole consideration of, okay, well, if um, evolutionary dynamics that progress the economy are driven by entrepreneurs, how do we support entrepreneurs better? Therefore, in national innovation systems, that came from that book. Yeah, and yeah. that sort of view that we should be thinking about how we should support entrepreneurs better, that has certainly motivated policy in Australia. So I think one of the great things that was done as part of that Rudd Government Innovation Review was we changed the tax incentives for research and development, which meant that startups could more easily get cash back from the government, like a, a tax <laughs> refund. So that, that And that helps a lot of startups with their cash flow. Sort of, yeah. Well, yeah. okay, yeah, yeah. That might be – maybe we yeah. can discuss – No, So like, there obviously no, – you think there's some issues with that. Maybe we should – my jadedness is coming through a little bit there. Okay. Um, like, great, great policy. Very, very important. But um, this is a bugbear of Australian governments, has been a bugbear of, of um, Australian governments for a long time, is how do you get innovation happening in Australia? And so that's probably a whole podcast in itself. I think it might be, yeah, yeah because we've got some peculiar issues here that yeah. you, you may not. Oh, in, we've, we've got like plenty, the, the yeah. States just has a – like, the US just seems to have a much more – entrepreneurial culture, uh, partly by necessity because you don't have the social welfare system we do in Australia, <laughs> yeah. perhaps. Yeah. But it's a different culture. Oh, a lot of, a lot of different things, Gene. Like, um, you know, uh, the, the, I'll leave you with this statistic and, and maybe we should have a discussion about um, innovation policy in Australia because it's a particular passion of mine and I've been trying to push a better consideration of innovation policy at with several governments. Um, the problem is that it's really bloody hard and it's going to involve some serious policy that Australians do not like. Um, uh, but I'll leave you with this statistic. I saw the, um, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the, the innovation dashboard that's put out by uh, the Department of... Um, I think it's now DISA, the Department of Industry, Science, Energy and Resources, um, but the innovation group within that put out a, uh, a dashboard on where venture capital flows in Australia. Now, if you break it down, I forget whether it's late stage or early stage venture capital. They break it down by region. The first location that the most venture capital in Australia flows to is New South Wales. The second location is overseas. Yeah, right. 
So um, now there, there's some arguments around whether that's a, com- a completely accurate representation, uh, you know, because uh, is it actually Australian companies that are registered in Delaware and all of that? But look, it goes to a very familiar anecdotal observation for anyone in this space knows that the first thing an Australian entrepreneur does once they get their feet off the ground is they relocate to America. Yeah, well, that's what happened with uh, Anthony Goldblum, who I who I worked with at uh, Treasury, and he had to go to get his startup Kaggle uh, financed. He basically had to go over to uh, to the states, to Silicon Valley, and yeah. uh, that was bought. That's the data science competition company. Yep, yep. They run competitions to yeah, analyze yeah, yeah, data, yeah, yeah. and yeah. Uh, uh, one of my colleagues I work with, Nicholas Gruen, who's been a guest on this podcast. He was one of the early investors in uh, in Kaggle, so he helped Anthony out here in Australia and then Anthony went over to uh, to Silicon Valley and Nick was over there from time to time and, yeah, they eventually got it funded and uh, bought by Google. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and now, look, yes. I, I should say that, that that I can see the comments section filling up with the counterexample of Atlassian. <laughs> but, look, for every Atlassian... Oh, or uh, Canva, but... Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, but even but like Canva's a bit uh, still relatively new, I believe, so it's yet to be seen whether they will stay in Australia... Okay. But, you know, for every Atlassian or every Canva, there's a Kaggle uh, yeah. or any number of other entrepreneurs who, who have to go overseas. And, and that's, that's got, there's a big discussion. I was really disappointed to see uh, the lack of discussion of this in the, in the federal budget. I understand why there was a lack of discussion of it in the federal, gov- in the federal budget because reasons. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know... Australia really needs – it's not just a matter of economic prosperity anymore. This is a matter of national security. Um, it is a matter of national security that we have innovation and entrepreneurship in Australia. We cannot keep riding on the coattails of the United States. We need to start looking at what the United States and, to a certain extent, Israel are doing. Israel's a remarkable case study of innovation and entrepreneurship, actually, but we need to be looking at what they're doing seeing why what they're doing is working, encouraging innovation and entrepreneurship and replicating it here in Australia. There are findings. We kind of know what's wrong with Australia in well, this education regard. education system, is that one of the issues? I mean, it'd have to be. That's, that's part of it, but it's not the whole problem. Okay. Um, frankly, it's our regulatory state. Good. Yes, I, that, that's yeah. – yep. If yeah, we, we want to go there, I like would we believe do that. Whole, we, we, we should have another chat about yeah. that because I, there's one more thing I really want to cover in this episode. Sure. We can leave that for another one because yeah. I could talk for yeah. hours about that. I mean, regulation is <laughs> one of my – an issue I am uh, passionate about. I'm, I, I want to make sure we get those regulations right so we're, we're achieving the objectives we need to Like because certainly we need to – be concerned about public health and safety, but we, we want to do – and the environment, we want to do but these things. But that's exactly in it, a, right, is nobody wants to have that conversation because it's a difficult conversation yeah. to have because whenever you say, look, here's red tape that's stopping entrepreneurs from getting into the market, you'll have five or six other people say, yes, but there's – you know, that regulation yeah. exists for this reason. And, you know, with our emotionally charged debate these days, they have the heckler's veto. And oh, so yeah. the conversation just gets shut down, right? So – yeah. So look, that's that's a debate that we can have. Uh, that's a talk that we can have another time because we'll do frankly, that another Gene, time. We have to look at that because yeah. that is number yeah. one thing. Now, yes. nobody's really looked at this data wise because you know, yeah. show me an academic who wants to talk about <laughs> deregulation really. But um, you know, that is something that we do need to look at because anecdotally, I know that that is 
at least anecdotally, I know that that's the case, that that is a massive problem for Australian entrepreneurs is getting over that regulatory hurdle. And it's got to be a problem for in some states in the United States too. So, for example, I mean, you've probably seen some of the the top, Podcasters or commentators yeah. who've moved out of like with their businesses, yeah. like Everyone's Ben Shapiro and, uh, and Joe, Joe Rogan. Rogan. Yeah, I think Elon's um, Elon's yeah. almost. I forget whether Elon's decided to move, but it, he's been on and off for about a year now. I right. know Peter Thiel's got out of um, Peter Thiel, the big yes, uh, Silicon yes. Valley investor, one of the who, PayPal. Yep, um, with founders, Elon, one of the yeah. PayPal founders. He's left San Francisco at least, um, and they're they're moving to Texas. Why? partly regulatory burden, partly state income taxes. But we kind of know what works, Gene. We know what works to get innovation and entrepreneurship off the ground. But um, it means that we're going to have to have a frank discussion about things that people don't like to talk about in Australia. Yeah. I'm going to always bring this up. Let's get to this question. (laughs) I was just going to quote Adam Smith. Yeah. Peace, easy taxes, and a tolerable administration of justice. <laughs> it sounds so reasonable, doesn't oh, no, no, no. it? But anyway, uh, yes. anyway uh, another time. Okay, final question. Wasn't there an article by Veblen back in the – was that in the early 20th uh, century? 1899. Why oh. is evolutionary economics not – why is economics not an evolutionary science? 1899. 1899. What was that in? Quarterly Journal of Economics? Quarterly Journal of Economics, yeah. Okay, tell me about that. What do you remember about that? Well, that was interesting. It, it, it even predated uh, – we, we typically talk about – so Veblen's, a, a, Veblen's different to, to Schumpeter. Um, so he was a professor at Harvard, was he? Like he was a Schumpeter? professor at – I think it was Harvard. Yeah. Um, he he kind of he was a very interesting character. He had he he was he was determined to revolutionize economics and determined to be unfaithful to his wife, <laughs> and that got him into some hot water at mm. Harvard, and um and he left. <laughs> interesting guy Thorstein Veblen. Um, but so Thorstein Veblen, really interesting character. He's the guy you will know this fellow from the term conspicuous consumption. Yes, that's, yes. that's what he came up with. Now, um, we typically, when we're talking about evolutionary economics, we typically date the first great evolutionary theories in economics to Joseph Schumpeter, who actually didn't use the word evolutionary economics. Um, because Thorstein Veblen was using, using evolutionary economics in a different way that actually, interestingly, has made a bit of a resurgence. Um, Gary Becker, the, the renowned neoclassical economist, towards the end of his life, uh, called himself a evolutionary economist, but he was talking about it in a more Veblenian sense. What was Veblen saying? Veblen had, um, this was 1899, well before Schumpeter had written his book. And what Veblen was picking up on was social Darwinism. Now, I don't mean that in the Herbert Spencer sense per se. I mean it in more what is now known as evolutionary psychology sense. All right, that's, so that was what Thorstein Veblen was picking up on. He wasn't really talking about economics as um, evolutionary economics in the way that most people will typically think of it now as seeing markets as um, uh, systems of differential selection and the, and, and, um, the, the reconciliation of variety into, into, um, into uh, homogeneity. He wasn't really seeing it in that natural selection sense. What he was seeing was evolutionary science can give us an understanding of where tastes come from. So he was thinking much more as an evolutionary 
psychologist and, and he's credited as one of the founders of American sociology. You'll yes, hear a lot yes, more about yes. him in a sociology degree than you will in economics. Um, the so, theory of – was he the theory of the leisure class? That's exactly right. That's where yeah. the term conspicuous consumption comes from. And so if you read the theory of the leisure class, as I have uh, for my sins, the, that's, a, that's one of the first great books of evolutionary psychology. And so that's why we typically say Schumpeter is the father of evolutionary okay. economics because what Veblen was talking about was more an evolutionary psychology approach to, uh, to uh, consumer theory. And also, by the way, producer theory. So he wrote another book, which was The, the Instinct of Workmanship. So he was a pl- what Veblen was saying was, look, well, we kind of take tastes as given in economics and we don't need to because we've got this new science of evolution which helps us explain where these desires come from. So why don't we graft a bit more of that into economics? And so the famous, the most famous example that, of that that he um, uh, wrote about was the theory of the leisure class where um, he adapted not the concept so much of natural selection but sexual selection into understanding consumer preferences with the idea of we wantonly display how much we how much wealth we have by spending it on uh, a Tesla, say, um, or, uh, or 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 luxury items. I'm not particularly much of a luxury item guy myself, so this is why I'm struggling for examples. But why do we spend all of the luxury items? Why did we have the belly pock? Why did we have the Gilded Age? of people spending so much wealth. Well, it was because it's because of this evolutionary drive in us to flaunt our wealth to attract a mate. Ah, so that's what yes, evolution that's yes. what so when Veblen was saying why is economics not an evolutionary science, he was saying, Well, economics is about humans. Human tastes are shaped by evolutionary dynamics. So why is evolutionary why is economics not an evolutionary science? So he's a really interesting character. He had a different take on evolutionary economics. That take is still there. Um, it's much more dominant in what is now known as institutional economics, um, but it became big in American sociology and you would probably argue had a massive influence on the emergence of evolutionary psychology. So a different take. It was looking at um, – so Ulrich Witt has written a bit about this, yes, who, yes. who was my doctoral um, examiner, um, but also for those of you who are on the intellectual dark web, uh, Gad Sad. Oh yeah, um, talks yeah. a lot about yes, this. Yes, yes. Um, he's he's essentially a modern day Veblenian, which is kind of interesting because the politics of the two are very much at odds. Um, but that that was Veblen's take on evolutionary economics. It's not what most evolutionary econo- economists would do these days. It's more what bioeconomists would do, which is a bit of a subgrouping within oh, evolutionary that's fascinating. economics. Yeah, I shouldn't have. I, but, yeah. I didn't realize there's a bit of a red herring in this conversation but it is fascinating no no it's 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 very much it's, it's relevant. very much okay. relevant oh, good, yeah good. it's just it's a path not taken but it is a path increasingly taken yeah by evolutionary economists so you talked about wanting to flaunt wealth and uh you know for perhaps selection of or, or making ourselves attractive to the opposite sex or whichever sex where we want someone to be attracted to us of course uh this is the 21st century uh, well <laughs> yes yes it is yes that, that's right so but it's also about status, isn't it? I mean, we get value from status. Like what I find fascinating is uh, um, I like uh, I like scotch, scotch whiskey. <laughs> and one of the things we've seen in the last 10 That's years. A, you're, a, you're a disgrace to your Irish uh, roots. Uh, 
<laughs> yes, uh, I mean there are some good Irish whiskies, of course. Yes. But I must say, uh, uh, I'm derailing you. Go yeah, on. you are derailing me. Yes, yes. So, <laughs> um, so I think in the last ten or fifteen years, there's been this growing interest in these single malt Scotch whiskies, yeah, whereas absolutely. traditionally, and and they're still the biggest sellers. The biggest sellers are the blended Scotch whiskies, your Johnny Walker or your Chivas Regal. Oh yeah. Uh, but there's this growing interest, and people are, are discovering all of these interesting. Uh, Scotch whiskies, and so the Glenlivets and the Glenfiddichs, and then the Ardbegs, and the yeah, <laughs> and all of these really, really interesting, distinctive whiskies. And, and you fo- you forgot Lafroy. Lafroy, yeah, yeah, that's correct. <laughs> yes, and uh, and it's it, it's a mark of status in a way. And, Absolutely, and, and, but it, it's hard to it's hard to explain because the blended whiskies are so much easier to drink, and that's traditionally why they were so popular. Yeah, yeah, yeah but. Yeah. This is something, this is a way that people can differentiate themselves. And I think you do need some sort of theory like what Veblen is driving at to, yeah, to explain that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the other example right now um, that was mentioned in the budget is uh, microbreweries, right? Yeah, so, yeah, craft, so that's a luxury yeah. item or coffee. Coffee is a luxury item now as well. You know, you, 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 it's not enough to just have a stub. That's one of the reasons Starbucks has never taken root in Australia is because of this exact thing. Well, we've always had good coffee because of all of the Italians and the Greeks who yeah. came over here post-war, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, what what's driving that is is exactly status. You know, we're, we're social beings and we evolved under the evolutionary pressure uh, to to stick together to survive. Very, very excellent, excellent um, evolutionary psychologist who's here in Brisbane. You should talk to him at some point. He was actually on Rogan, um, is uh, Bill Von Hippel. I know, yes. Yeah, I saw, yeah. His, yep, yeah, saw the episode. And yep. he talks a lot about this, that the thing that differentiates humans is we, we evolved to be social animals. And what's really important in social structures is, is who's, who's got the biggest tail, uh, like peacocks, right? We're not that different to peacocks. And uh, who, who's got the most status? And the way we signal status is um, by redundancy, right? We, we, we signal status by having costly... Uh, but we, we, uh, Costly signals? Is that what they talk a about? St- a signal is only, um, uh, uh, only valuable insofar as it is costly, really, because you, you impose a cost to say, I am, will- I am so good and so high status that I'll impose this cost on myself to show you how high status I am. And so that, that, um, that uh, tendency is what one of the things that it wasn't as well thought out uh, in Thorstein Veblen's time, but it was one of the things that he was jutting up against is this really important phenomenon. We call it keeping up with the Joneses, uh, conspicuous consumption. It's showing our status to show that we're 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 the bigger ape than all the other apes, right? Yes. Um, and so that that's a really interesting field that's 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 coming back into evolutionary economics a bit. Um, Robert Frank, uh, who wrote a really interesting book called The Darwin Economy, has been doing a lot of this in behavioral economics. Um, and it's it's interesting uh, that it's being incorporated into to evolutionary economics in. Um, the demand side of evolutionary economics, understanding where the demand com- comes from that exerts the evolutionary pressures on entrepreneurs. And so that's a really interesting area of evolutionary economics right now. It's really at, at, the, at the cutting edge of a lot of the theory 
is marrying up that. So I'm glad you brought this up because that's one of the cutting edge things. And this is one of the things I was trying to do in my PhD in some ways was marry up the Veblenian evolutionary psychology approach to economics with the Schumpeterian entrepreneurship and innovation approach to economics. So undergirding demand on one side with this Veblenian approach and undergirding supply with this Schumpeterian approach on the other and recasting the whole thing. Sounds good to me. We may have to come back to that in another conversation because I've, <laughs> I've, I've taken so much of your time and I've, I've got to wrap this up soon because you'll probably have to get going. Uh, is it fair to say that this is still, it's not a, a dominant school in economics or a dominant view. It's still sort of, it is influen- increasingly influential in policy circles and influencing policy, evolutionary economics and the Schumpeterian approach. But is it fair to stay, say it still hasn't fully, um, it's not, it hasn't taken over oh, economics, yeah, no. it's not Absolutely. through all the textbooks Absolutely. and all it's that? It's still very much a heterodox school of economics, okay. which I think is kind of unfair because yeah. um, it, is, it is quite formal, it is rigorous. The Journal of Evolutionary Economics is, is a very rigorous and strong journal. Um, and there's other journals as well that are equally strong and, and rigorous in evolutionary economics, but that's the main one. Um, but it's certainly not anywhere near dominant. There's yeah. very it's even in um, the probably where I'd say most of the research is being done now is Germany, um, with a very strong show with a very strong subgroup in Italy as well. But even there, it's not a dominant school. There's only a few um, university departments in Germany and Italy that have much of this sort of thinking. Mm. It's very rare. At UQ, UQ was um, famous in the in the nineteen nineties. Uh, they pioneered a, a, a new way of of looking at evolutionary economics, integrating complex systems theory, um, and that became known as the Brisbane School of Thought. Um, that only lasted about ten years before it kind of withered away um, because it just isn't a dominant school of thought. That's not really much incentive to hire academics uh, in evolutionary economics. The, the journals that you can publish in are not, they're not ranked uh, the same way that the mainstream journals are ranked. Um, and most students, you, you can't really get very much support for teaching these concepts in universities. So you can't hire the academics because they can't get published in, in sort of mainstream journals because it's a, considered a heterodox field of thought. Those academics can't teach students, and so those students don't take it on to treasury, right? Yeah. So you'll see much more thinking about evolutionary economics permeating the Department of Innovation. Yeah, yeah, clearly, yeah. Um, you'll see almost none in treasury, finance, prime minister and cabinet. Um, yeah. Behavioral economics is far, far, far more dominant yes, as, a, yes. as, a, as a slightly, you know, people would say it's mainstream, but it's not quite mainstream school yeah, of economics. yeah. We chatted about that a couple of years ago, behavioural economics. So so I I guess what I'd want to say is that so it's still it's not it's not dominant, and it's uh, it may not be it's it's it should be more widely known. The insights of evolutionary economics, in my view, should be more widely appreciated because they're very intuitive. I think they make a lot of sense. Yeah, I can't help but agree with you, Gene. (laughs) Absolutely, very good. I'm so glad that such a brilliant person agrees with me. <laughs> thanks, thanks, Fred. So, uh, in uh, in conclusion, any final words? I know you said a lot already, but anything? Any final words? 
Oh well, I just encourage people to go and have a look into this into this school of thought, um, this this view of of how economics works. I mean, as I said at the beginning, when I encountered this as a nineteen year old, um, uh, it, it just totally blew my mind. It was such an it was intuitive without being simplistic. It revealed something to me about how economies really work that I didn't get from my standard economics degree, which is not to poo-poo that. It's just to say this was a really interesting area. So I'd encourage people to go and look up. I wrote a piece on this. If you Google evolutionary economics, my blog on this uh, will come up as like the third result, which is quite amusing. (laughs) Is this on Medium? Yeah, on Medium. Um, Well done. Yeah, that was a bit of a a double take moment when that happened. Um, So have a read of that um, as just maybe a primer, but look, I am but a worm compared to the to the giants who've strode strode this field. Um, you know, uh, Eleanor Ostrom um, is is a bit different. She's not quite an evolutionary economist, but she's an absolute giant um, in evolutionary thinking and economics. Not so much in evolutionary economics per se, but um, you know, look into Joseph Schumpeter. Look into uh, Nelson and Winter. Nelson, Winter, Schumpeter. The greatest economists never to win the Nobel Prize. <laughs> Ooh, okay, okay, yeah. yeah, up there with uh, I'd say Joan Robinson, uh, but yeah, 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 Joan actually, yeah, yeah, if you, yeah, Joan, if you were going to give it to to Chamberlain as well, um, yeah, no, definitely. Well, I guess she was still alive while the uh, the Nobel prizes were still uh, was were going. So I think there was always a controversy, and and they thought it was because she beat Samuelson and Solo in that. Cambridge debater yes. on capital theory. Yes, yes, and we all just studiously ignored that right, <laughs> for yes. the next 50 and, years. And it was a bit of an oversight because yes. she probably deserved it. And uh, At least for her work on imperfect competition, yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. yeah, But certainly Nelson and Winter, I, I would agree with you, yeah. Yeah, yeah. no, they're, they're unbelievable. They've got, more, they've got something like, it's got to be up to 35,000 citations of their work, almost yeah. none in economics. They're very, if you look at any business school texts, You'll see all uh, Nelson and Wimp, Winter just shot through um, the literature there. They're they're all through that, uh, all through the management science literature. They're all through the innovation studies literature. So go and have a look at these these scholars. Um, if you were going to try and um, read some work on this, the the best place to start is with the great text, um, Joseph Schumpeter's Theory of Economic Development, and also follow it up with uh, his work, Capitalism, Socialism and Democracy, which is a different work, and, and we didn't get to talk about it much today, but it's very interesting, especially in light of, of the the economic dynamics that we're facing now. So have a look at that. and um, Might have to do a deep yeah. dive on that book in a future episode because it is an, a critically important book. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we were chatting yeah. today about how the, the the fundamental message of that, if I remember correctly, is that democratic societies have a tendency towards socialist policies, like not necessarily Soviet Union style mm. uh, socialism, but certainly wealth, Scandinavian welfare state yeah. type socialism. And, and exactly, Schumpeter was was exactly pointing to uh, that was exactly linked to Schumpeter's theory of the entrepreneur and innovation. Mm. Um, that book was all organised around Schumpeter saw. Uh, saw, thought, and I think forecasted accurately that eventually um, political imperatives and government imperatives would would 
colonize the entire economy and squeeze out room for for innovators and entrepreneurs so that such innovation as would be done would be done in bureaucracies in major corporations um if if that yeah. and so he 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 um I think in many ways was prophetic and we could do a whole podcast on that. Okay, we'll have to come back and do that. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Dr. Brendan Markey-Tallow, I really appreciate your insights. It's been terrific. No, thanks very much for having me, Gene. As I said, could have talked to an empty room about this, but I'm glad that I could talk at you. Very good. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Economics Explored podcast. If you're enjoying it, please tell your family and friends And please give us a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or on whatever platform you're listening on. If you'd like to get in touch with any comments or to ask any questions, please email me at gene.tunny at gmail.com. Until next week, goodbye.